Well, as you can see on the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is Beware of Deceivers. Beware of Deceivers. You could say beware of danger because that's ultimately on a spiritual plane what John is going to be talking about here in these verses we're going to look at here in Second John. Beware of deceivers, but it's equivalent to saying beware of danger. You see, in the natural realm, each person has the greatest influence or control over his or her own safety. You're in the best position to keep yourself safe or to take measures to protect yourself. And yes, your safety is affected by others. Now we're talking natural realm here. That can be true in the spiritual realm too, I guess, as people around you can have an impact on you. But just as we focus on the natural realm, your safety can be affected by others. Others can create or expose you to danger. Just think of people in your life that as you tend to be around them, you tend to find yourself in dangerous places. You probably have a brother or sister like that, maybe a friend like that, where each time you come into their life or you're doing some activity together, there's just some, some way that they always figure out to make the situation a little bit dangerous or precarious. And so, I mean, I can think of plenty of examples of that. When, when you're learning to hunt, this is one of those things, where even if young kids have gun safety or hunting training, Guns are, of course, quite dangerous, and young people have quite bad judgment. And so when you start putting firearms into the arms of young, undeveloped adolescents, there can be danger. And certainly as I was learning about guns or hunting, there's times where I put myself in danger, and there's times other people put me in danger. I remember sometimes the excitement of seeing a rough grouse cause you to, you know, load the or cock the hammer on your your gun but then it would fly away and on the type of single shot gun i was using that would to make it safe again you'd have to take the hammer and release it so that you're not walking around with a gun that has no actual safety the hammer is the safety in any event forgot to do that and as i'm running through the woods after a grouse the gun goes off now it doesn't go off on accident obviously i hit the trigger somehow but that's a very dangerous thing. Other times I know where I would be hunting with my... Is Aaron here? Is he sitting out here? There he is in the back. You know, we were young, starting to learn how to grouse hunt, and a rabbit came running across. We were kind of walking side by side. Well, you're following the rabbit, you know, but you have a person next to you. And I'm, I'm not going to over-exaggerate the amount of danger, but it made me, it made me want to, in the future, kind of walk behind him more. <laughs> a little, little bit less side by side with him on that. So there are others that do affect your safety. They, there are others in your life that can protect you from danger too. They can expose you to danger. And I've given you a couple of off-the-cuff, unprepared examples of doing it to yourself and maybe having others cause danger to you. But there's also times where people can contribute to your safety as well. But ultimately, the point I'm getting at is that you personally have the greatest impact on your own safety. You personally have the greatest impact on your own safety. And that's why parents spend so much time trying to teach their children to look out for themselves. Now, if you've had kids long ago and 
or if you have kids now, you can probably think back. Some of those that are raising them right this moment, they might have some fresher memories coming to mind. But very often it's, you know, arm across the child to keep them from stepping out into the road. Very often you're saying to them, look out, look, look where you're going. Or watch out. Or like my wife says most often, you need to learn to be aware of your surroundings. You need to learn to be aware of your surroundings because children get caught up in whatever it is they're doing and they forget about the ever-present dangers all around them. And life has got quite a number of things in it that could be potentially hazardous or dangerous to you. And so learning to beware or be aware anyway of your surroundings is critical to your safety. It's critical to your physical well-being. Now there's a direct correlation to be made in the spiritual realm too. As your heavenly father seeks to teach and remind you to have your guard up, to be aware of your surroundings, to be aware of the dangers around you, just like a parent would be doing with their child in the physical realm. Your heavenly father is wanting to do that in the spiritual realm, to remind you, be aware, look around you, watch out for the dangers that are ever present. So John here This is one of many, many warnings you could find as you're reading through the Word of God from the front cover to the back cover. But we happen to be here looking at a verse-by-verse study of 2 John. So through the inspiration of John, God speaks to us and gives us a warning against false teaching. If you haven't already, turn, if you will, to 2 John. And then we're going to be picking up in verses 7 and 8. Now, to bring you up to speed, if you haven't been here for the first verses that we've gone through, the first section of this letter has been focused on truth and love, living or walking, having your manner of living characterized by God's truth and God's love. So now we're in a place where as we come up to verses 7 and 8, there's going to be this contrast being made to be aware though or be on guard against what is false. So if we're clinging to or walking or living in or having that be our objective to walk in truth, have that permeating our thinking and directing our manner of living, having God's influence on our lives. Then we also, on the flip side of that though, is to also be aware of be or be on guard against what is false or what is in error. So let's pick up here in verse, verse 7 to begin with. For many deceivers... Now, this is in contrast to this walking in truth again. So, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now, what is their primary deception here? Who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, that individual who's doing that, this is a deceiver and an anti-Christ. So, as we break down this verse a little bit more, we have this transitionary word here, for. Right here, for. And four indicates that what follows offers further explanation of what was previously said. So we've had these previous exhortations, as I've commented on already, that involve walking or living in truth and love. Now we're going to see the contrast to living in truth. What, what also that could involve, it's, it's being drawn into a manner of living that's affected or influenced by deception or by error. And so the reason I have to be telling you and exhorting you about walking or living in truth is because the natural default or the natural alternative to walking in truth is to be impacted and influenced by deception. 
And so that's the transition here with this word for. Now, the next part of it is many deceivers have gone out into the world. It's not, it's not just a small danger that you face. It's a great danger that you face. And the first way we see that is the word many. There's not just a little bit of deception in the world. There's many deceivers who have gone out into the world. This isn't some type of an isolated problem. This is a widespread problem that has permeated the world in its entirety as it's under the influence of the wicked one or Satan, the father or the God of this world. And so as his opposition to God that is presented through deception and through error or perversion of truth, as that is spread into the minds of those that are in opposition to God themselves or have rejected God themselves, then they, per, then they repeat or present the messaging of Satan himself, which is always in direct opposition to God's truth. It's not just a little bit of a distinction. It's a complete and total contrary side of, the, side of things. They're not at all connected. And so when you're thinking about the significance or the extent of the problem, it's great because there's many deceivers. And here's a verse in 1 John 4.1, so the, the last letter before this, 1 John that we studied not too terribly long ago. But in 1 John 4.1 it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, meaning that there are some that claim to be directed by God that are not. There's that possibility exists. Now, how common is that? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Again, when you talk about attributing authorship to John, John doesn't identify himself directly as the author, but he's, authorship is prescribed or attributed to him because of this kind of similar language that is found throughout these letters. So they've false prophets, he says here, now he says, many deceivers have gone out into the world, but the same kind of language. Now, as I already touched on, what inspires their deception? What inspires the deception that is being propagated or repeated by these many deceivers that have gone out in the world? Well, ultimately, it's Satan himself, and Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Who is behind all of this deception? Who is behind all of this, all of the teaching that is in error? The attempts to misguide people, to confuse people, to distract people, to pervert the truth of God. Satan is ultimately behind it. We read here in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 4, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Meaning the one who already has the light doesn't need more light when it comes to that message of the gospel per se. They need more light in terms of growing in their faith. But they're not the ones who are injured by your gospel being hidden. If your gospel is veiled, it's not impacting the other believers in your life so much as it's impacting those that do not know who Jesus is and what he's done for them. That's who it's having the greatest impact on. Now, look, look how those who are perishing are described. These are the people in the world who do not yet know Jesus Christ. How are they described? Whose minds, the God of this age, who's that? Satan has blinded. Now what does that cause them to do? To not believe. What is the thing that condemns mankind? Not believing. The condemnation is not believing, rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not putting your confidence in what he's done for you. 
The issue is not that they haven't lived good enough lives. The issue is that because of the blindness that's brought about by the God of this world, they have been convinced to not believe in Jesus Christ. Now, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. If the gospel isn't hidden, then what would happen? It would shine. If it shines, what does it have the ability to do? To permeate the thinking of those who do not know Christ. They cannot believe in somebody who they first haven't heard about. So as our youngsters have their first tastes, if you will, of proclaiming the good news message of who Jesus is and what he's done for them, that's an example of shining God's light out into the world. Now, don't forget that though we're not of this world, we are still in this world. We're living in this world. And the thinking of the world, it permeates and it can influence our thinking as well. It can come right into the church. The church doesn't have, it's not like... Uh, a Faraday cage or something that can keep out the world. As the thinking of the world has wiggled its way into our minds and become our way of thinking, instead of being influenced by God's way of thinking, then we, when we come into the church, we bring that kind of thinking with us. And that's why we always have to be encouraging each other, edifying each other, building up each other, lift, coming alongside of each other even challenging and convicting and iron sharpening iron, even having friction with each other at times. Now, can you have friction with each other in a positive and healthy way? Yeah, you can. Most people have no clue how to do that. I mean, not you, other people. (laughs) Most of us just don't know how to have friction in a way that's intended to benefit ourselves and others around us. But God wants to show us how to do that. He wants to show us how can we be gracious? How can we season that friction with love so that it could be sharpening, it could have a sharpening effect, that the rubbing would make the shine kind of a scenario? And so that is what God intends to happen. But that deception, the church is susceptible to it too because we're under the influence or under the attack constantly in our thinking with the thinking of the world around us too. But that's what Satan is trying to do. If he can shut us up, he can keep people from coming to know Jesus. He can keep them on his side. He can keep them aligned with the future that he faces, which he doesn't want to face alone. He wants to take as many people down with him as he can. Now, friends, the outcome is already fixed. It's already final. The battle's already been won. The victory was secured on the cross as Jesus Christ rose triumphant from the grave, having died for every man's sin, past, present, and future, and made possible a way for man, through faith in his finished work, to be born into his family and to experience an eternity with him that was absolutely impossible apart from his death in their place. But as he rose triumphant from the grave, that was the final nail in the coffin for Satan. Meaning that Satan is... He's like a puppet government that is running around but has no real power behind it. There's a word for it. Can't refer refer to how they how they refer to a government who has been voted out, but they're still waiting for the transition to take place. Anyone got that word at the top of their head? What's that? Lame lame duck is another word way of saying it. But they're still kind of out there. They kind of have some power, but nobody's really listening to them anymore because the next administration is coming in. The power's already been shifted. That battle has already been lost in terms of the election. And so in any event, I digress, that's Satan's 
objective would be to shut us up and to keep the gospel veiled. So as we move on, that's the inspiration behind this. Now the question is, if Satan is behind this deception, this many deceivers that have gone out into the world, if Satan is ultimately behind that, the question is, are people difficult to deceive? Are people difficult to deceive? And the answer is no. I, I, wish, that we're, I wish we could say, no, it's, yeah, we're difficult to deceive. No, the flesh is not difficult to deceive at all. Why? Because the flesh naturally aligns itself with darkness or with deception. The nature of man naturally gravitates towards what is false because men love darkness rather than light. The kids were singing, if I could have but one verse, they said, John 3.16 would do. God loved the world and gave his son to die for me and you. And I was tempted to sing that chorus there, but we, we won't. God loved the world and he gave his son to die for me and you. So I, I recently, we talked about this at the men's Bible study on Friday. But if you were going to summarize John three sixteen, it was God loved, for God so loved the world. God gave that he gave his only begotten son. You believe that whoever believes should not perish and then you live but shall have everlasting life. So God loved, God gave, you believe and you live. You live. That's how simple the gospel message is. It takes mankind to make it more complicated than that. It takes mankind to come along and say, what God did was 99% effective, and I need to now help him fix what he left undone. I, I need to help God perfect his eternal plan. He was all-knowing after all, but not quite enough. He needed my little bit of intellect to kick this ball across the finish line. And I'll help him out with my ideas about what I must do to save myself, even though he said, I'm the one who came to seek and to save those who were lost. Even though I cried out on Calvary, it is finished that the debt that was owed for all man's sin for all time had been paid. And if it had been paid in full, what remains yet for you to pay? That's the question. And the answer is nothing, but mankind still wants to figure out how can I have my part in this? How can I feel good about what I'm doing to save myself? And the fact of the matter is that you are absolutely hopeless and helpless apart from God, the Savior of the world, sending the Savior of the world, His Son, to come along and do what saviors do, to save you when you were down, drowning, when you were desperate, when you were hopeless, when you were facing an eternity separate from Him. He came along and He didn't save you a little bit. He offered salvation in total if you would grab a hold of the lifeline that's being extended to you as a free gift. That's, that's ultimately the gospel message. So are people easily deceived? The answer is yes, because the next verse after this says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The reason he came is so the world could be saved. He came to seek and to save. He says he's not willing that any would perish. The next verse, John three eighteen, says, he who believes is not condemned. But he who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Back to the question, what is condemning man? Is it that they haven't done enough for Jesus? They haven't jumped through enough religious hoops and religious rituals? 
What's condemning man is that they haven't put their faith exclusively in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They're holding back. They're thinking they have some part in this. They're not putting all of their eggs into one basket. It's faith in Christ alone or it's not faith at all. You know what the next verse, though, says about how easy it is for man to be deceived? John 3, 19 says, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, but this is the travesty of it all, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Man naturally gravitates towards what is false, not what is true. Men love darkness. And so are men difficult to deceive? And the answer is no. Now the next question would be, where are the deceivers found as we're looking at? For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Where are they found? The answer is in the same world you live in. That's where they're found. And of course, the sin nature is operating as a form of deception within you. As you have that natural part of you that's always saying, put me first, put self first. Exalt self, lift self up, put the spotlight on self. It's all about me. And isn't it glorious? Except for ask yourself, truly ask yourself, be honest in the depths of your heart. Have you really been satisfied? Has it really brought you joy and peace when it's been all about self? Has that really satisfied your soul? Has that really brought you the joy and the peace that you were hoping for? Unless you're deceived, you would be shaking your head, no, it hasn't. Now, if you're still deceived about that, you might think, yeah, it's been great. And I'll tell you, there's been times that were great because the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. When you make yourself the center of the universe, there's some fun in that at times, but it never satisfies your soul. It never feeds your soul. It never lifts you up. It never enlightens you. So where are they found? Well, they're found within, but they're also found, the deceivers are in the same world you live in. It says into the world. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. And you see, though the believer is no longer positionally of this world, he still lives presently in this world and faces persistent spiritual attacks. This is the beware part that John is really focused on here. Beware. You have to be on guard against this. Yes, you're not positionally of this world anymore. Your citizenship has been transferred to heaven. You're a citizen of heaven now. You're not, you're not a citizen of this world anymore. He says, I've, I've called you, I, I've called you and I've, you've inherited this adoption into my royal family and a part of that is that your citizenship has changed. You're no longer of this world. But you are still affected by this world. In, you're living in this world and you're persistently facing attacks on the spiritual, in the spiritual realm while you're here. And as you think about being influenced by the attacks and the, of the thinking of the world, the mentality of the world, we could call it human viewpoint or worldly viewpoint. As you think about that, there's nothing about the thinking or perspective of the world that can benefit the believer spiritually. Let me say that again. There is nothing about the thinking or perspective of the world that can benefit the believer spiritually. Now, why is that? 
because that thinking doesn't originate with the source of life. It doesn't originate with God himself. If that perspective and that thinking of the world, the things that the world exalts, the things that the world promotes, the perspectives of the world, the ideology of the world, if that is directly influenced by the deceiver, the God of this world, Satan himself, then there's nothing about that thinking that can spiritually benefit the man of faith. Nothing. Because it doesn't originate with the only source of life, the only source of truth, God himself. It stands in stark contrast to that. And we see that here again, and we go back to the letter just before this one, 1 John 2.16. It says this, for all that is in the world. You see, that's a very hard word. You can't wiggle really around that. It's a decisive word. All that is in the world. Now he's going to describe it in three ways. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Three ways of describing the kinds of things that are in the world. But this is just a parenthetical type of a statement here. If you were to follow the sentence, for all that, in the, for all that is in the world is not of the Father, but is of the world. Meaning there's nothing in the world that can benefit you because it's not sourced in God himself. So then you have to learn. You have to learn to distinguish between the world's way of thinking and divine thinking or divine viewpoint. Now, how do you do that? How do you learn to distinguish between the deception that has gone out into the world, the world that you live in, and the truth of God himself? Well, the only way you're going to learn to distinguish between it is you're going to have to learn the truth. And you're going to have to get out of the way of the spirit of truth that is seeking to enlighten your, your eyes, to illuminate your thinking, that is seeking to work in and through you so that you would have some discernment to determine based on the truth that you learn from God's word and the working, the inworking of the spirit of truth inside of you, that you'd have the wiring or the capacity to have discernment about what is false and what is true. But it all comes back to God as the source and ultimately God's word and God's spirit. It's not you that makes yourself some kind of a soldier against deception. God is the one who equips his soldiers with his weapons or his armor of defense against the attacks of the evil one. God's the one who does that. But the question is, do I want to be equipped Do I want to practically appropriate the equipment that is available to me? That would be like being a goalie in a hockey game and having a locker full of protective equipment and choosing practically to not put any of it on. Now, could you do that? Yes, but the pucks as the team's warming up that are flying at you are going to hurt a lot. Anyone who's been hit by a puck Show of hands. Okay. They're not soft, right? Now, how goofy would that be that you were given this protective equipment to protect you from the attacks and you just won't put it on? How about this? This is more typical that we'll put some of it on. We'll appropriate some of the protection that God has made available to us, but we won't put it all on. Imagine going out there, again, as that goalie, and you've put it all on, but not the face mask. That's going to all be well and good while they're bouncing off of your shin pads, right? Who's taking a puck to the face? Who knows somebody who's missing teeth from taking a puck to the 
face. Well, just watch more, look at more pictures of hockey players. That's the idea. That's the idea there. So you have to learn that. You have to be willing to get into God's word and let God's spirit work inside you. Now, what is the primary deceptive message? So we continue on here. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, but what's their primary message? They do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about not confessing that Jesus has come in the faith? First, we've got to understand what this word confessing means. It means to, they don't agree, they don't admit, or they don't acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And the primary way that Satan attacks truth associated with the, is the truth that's associated with the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you want to under, attack the message of Christianity, you have to attack the message of Jesus Christ. Now, there's really two aspects to the message of Jesus Christ. Who was he? And what did he do for sinful mankind? So in this instance, they're attacking the first part of that, the person of Jesus Christ. They do not confess that Jesus came in the flesh, that he came at all. Now, there's an aspect to it that the most common attack was to say that Jesus was a not deny that Jesus existed, but to deny that Jesus was God himself, that he was deity, that he was the unique incarnate God-man, that he was fully God and fully man at the same time as he came needing to be fully man in order to die on Calvary, but yet at the same time not relinquishing the fact that he was fully God. And so because he was fully God, that's the reason why his death could have a value that exceeded the debt that was owed by all mankind. And what was the debt that was owed by all of mankind? The debt that was owed by all mankind was death. The consequence of being identified with a race of sinners and being a sinner by choice yourself was that you had caused an estrangement from God and His holiness and His righteousness and His justice. And as you were identified with sinfulness, there was a a span that could not be... Bridged because you were now identified with sin and God was still holy in character. So as you're thinking about this conundrum, the Bible refers to that condition of being estranged from God, being estranged from the source of life as being dead in trespasses and sin. Dead in the sense that you were spiritually separated from God. Now, you were also, the, the final outcome of that was that if you remain spiritually separated from God, you were going to remain forever physically separated from, the God, from God in the place where God is not. But it's not so much about physical death, though because of sin mankind did experience, does experience physical death as well. It's about spiritual death and how as a result of rejecting God and being influenced or tainted by the effects of sin, there was this barrier that was caused to exist, a wall of sin or a separation due to sin between God and man. God and man. And so the Bible refers to that as death, that separation that takes place between man and God. And as you're thinking about Jesus coming in the flesh, if you don't acknowledge that Jesus was God, that he was the Savior, the Messiah, then if one person were to die in the place of other guilty people, because remember, the outcome or the debt that each man owed was their own life, their own death. And so if one person were to substitute his death in the place of an unrighteous person's death or a sinner's 
the debt that was owed by one sinner, you'd have one person set free if, if that had happened. But how could one person's death, Jesus Christ's death, satisfy the sin debt that was owed, the penalty of death for sin, that was owed by all men for all time? How could that be? And the only way it could be is that the one who died, the value of his life would have to be greater than the debt of death that was owed by all mankind who were estranged from God due to their sinfulness. And that's the whole picture of the Old Testament. How an innocent is going to have to die in the place of the guilty. An innocent is going to have to shed blood to pay off the debt that is owed by the one who is dead in trespasses and sin, who is plagued with iniquity, who is tainted by sin, who is looking at or is facing an eternity separate from the God who loves them. And so the whole picture points to this coming Messiah, this coming Savior, this coming Rescuer, whose life would be so valuable that when he gave up his life, it would count or it would exceed the debt that was owed by all men. So then the question is, why aren't all men saved? Why, why aren't all men going to heaven, though, if the, the value of Christ's death exceeded the debt that was owed by all men's sin? For the same reason that the goalie's equipment at times is sitting in a locker, but it hasn't been applied to the goalie himself. Now, that's in a practical example. Because the payment's been made, the money is available in the account to be applied to each individual account. So all men's accounts are in the negative. They're all facing an eternity separate from God unless something is done about it. Christ pays that debt. The funds of his death, so to speak, the value of his life is then put into an account. That account is available to be appropriated to every mankind, every man, woman, and child on planet earth, to their account. So their account can be brought into a right standing with the holy God. It's available. But how is it appropriated? It's appropriated by... God loved, God gave, man believes, and then man lives. Man has to put their confidence, their faith in what Christ has done for them. That's how man appropriates God's provision to his account. Christ's sacrifice to his account. By faith. That's why the Philippian jailer says to the Apostle Paul, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in him, and you shall be saved. That debt, that payment, can now finally be applied to your account. Now, did you do anything? No, you accepted a gift that was available. The Christmas tree has gifts all around it, and they're addressed to every person on planet Earth. The question is, will you receive the gift that's been made available to you? And there's only one way to do that. You accept it. You don't do anything you focus on what's been done for you. It's not about what you can do for Christ. It's about what Christ has done for you. You can't improve upon this perfect plan, friends. And that's what we're going to be celebrating with the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. So they attack the deity of Jesus Christ. They attack the sufficiency of his redemptive work on Calvary. That's what they attack. Or that they are attacking in this instance. Now, that's not the only thing that they attack, but that is the thing that's being attacked here. The deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, consider the ramifications of rejecting Christ. If you're going to have a message that's false, that is trying to keep people from God, what better message than this? And we've talked about it a little bit. 
The one who rejects Christ, there could be nothing worse than that. Because to reject Christ is to reject God's provision for your sinfulness, his way of escape, his plan of rescue. To reject that means that you'll remain identified with your sin instead of having the righteousness of Christ credited to your account to bring your account into a good standing so that you can stand before God one day at the gate of heaven, so to speak, and say, and he says, why should I let you in? And you say, because I've applied the payment of your son to the debt that I owe, so my account is now in good standing. Because of what he did for me. I accepted that. And he says, come on in, son. Welcome home. Boy, I would hate to be the one who's going to stand before the Lord one day and say, the reason you should let me in is because I came up with a better plan than you had. Because my attempts at fixing my problem were better than the sacrifice of the thing that you held most dear. That the sacrifice of your son wasn't enough? But aren't you lucky to have me, God, because I kicked this thing across the finish line. And he's going to say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Because you rejected my son, you rejected me. That barrier or separation of sinfulness is still in the way. And now you'll face the consequence of that, which is to have to be separate from me for all of eternity. Now, how is the one who's proclaiming this kind of deception labeled? They're labeled as a deceiver and an antichrist. A deceiver is one who's peddling lies. An antichrist, simple. It's one who's against Christ. So the one who's undermining the person and work of Jesus, certainly they're peddling something that's false, and certainly they're against Christ. So now we move to verse 8. Look to yourselves. So in light of this fact, in light of this danger that's out there, and how widespread that danger is. Now look to yourself. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. When you look at this word look, it just means to be aware, to observe, or pay attention. This is the first of three present active imperatives in this letter. When you talk about the primary instructions, when somebody gives a primary instruction, they want it to stand out. And so in English, we do that with exclamation points. In the Greek language, when the writer would want to have something stand out as, this is the primary instruction or the primary advice that I'm giving to you or exhortation to you that I want you to pay attention to, it's done by using this imperative mood. And so as you see that, in this whole letter, there's only three imperatives. And this is one of them. Look to yourselves. Watch out. Be aware. Pay attention because of this danger that I've just got done talking about. But look at this. Look to yourselves. Your own thinking should be your primary concern. Before you worry about protecting me, think about protecting yourself, guarding your own thinking, being aware of the dangers that your mind is facing, the attacks on your thinking that are taking place in the world around you. So look to yourselves. Now, after having done that, yes, should you have a godly concern for my spiritual well-being? I hope so. I have a concern for your spiritual well-being. But that's not your primary focus. Your primary focus is look to yourselves. Watch out. Be on guard. Be careful about what? Potential false teaching from these many deceivers that have gone out into the world. Now, to look out or to be aware or observe, pay attention, these kind of things, they require diligence. They require Comparing teaching that is known to be true 
to what you're hearing and evaluating, is this true or not? Now, if you compare what you're hearing to what you know to be true, where do we find that? In God's Word. When we make that comparison, either it's going to line up or it's not. But that's how we identify what is false. And it's hard to do that without knowing what the standard of truth is. The only place that you find the standard of truth is in God's Word. So then the question is, is God's Word worth investing in? Ask yourself that. Really ask yourself that. Ask yourself what you can manage to make time for each and every day and each and every week and each and every year of your life. And ask yourself, is, would it be worthwhile to make some time for God's Word? Now, come on, we, we've all, many people who are here have been coming out to churches for a long time. This isn't new, a new revelation. This isn't shocking information, is it? This isn't, a, this isn't a new challenge. But we have to really prayerfully consider why do we always figure out a way to neglect the thing that is most important to our safety, to our well-being. We have a million and one different ways of getting around it, justifying it making our excuses. But come on. We, can't have, we, we shouldn't have more time for Facebook than we have for Jesus Christ and His Word. We shouldn't have more time for our youth, our young people's activities in terms of our children's activities than we have for God's Word. We shouldn't have more time for soaking in the tub than reading God's Word. We shouldn't have more time with playing our, with our pets than God's Word. Have I offended everyone yet? Is there more examples we can get to? (laughs) Ice fishing, making a little bit of extra cash on overtime. On and on and on we could go, right? What's your thing? Stand up in the back. No. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't about any one of us, right? It's about all of us making more time for God's word because that's the thing that ultimately protects us. Now, if we're looking out or being aware, what objective is in mind? For what purpose should we being, be on guard? Be protective of our thinking. For what, what, what objective is in mind here? Or you could say it, or else what? What would happen if I don't do that? What's the potential downside of not doing that? Well, there's two statements here that are given. Look to yourselves that, there's our purpose statement in, in the Greek language. There's two of them. That there, and then you have that in the next clause. But that we do not lose those things we work for. That's one potential option. Now the flip side of the same coin is, but that instead we would receive a full reward. So instead of losing out, we'll receive the full reward. So we're either going to lose the reward or we'll receive the full reward. It's basically saying the same thing, but as flip sides of the same coin. That's what we're talking about here. As that's the thing, that's the objective, that's the or else what part of this verse. So they're stated sort of as alternatives to each other. But no, the believer never risks loss of familial standing or positional salvation. And I say that because so many people read a clause like this and they say, well, this is talking about losing out on our salvation. I can put that to rest real easy by saying it says that you would not lose the things you worked for. Can you work for salvation? No. It's a gift from God. It's not of works. Bible says it over and over again. So no, you can never lose that. It's not about that. It's about loss of rewards, and we'll get into that in a second. 
The destiny of a believer is determined and preserved by God, not the believer. That's why we know this isn't about my positional standing in God's family. You can see that here in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, meaning I didn't deserve that. It's another way of talking about God's tender loving kindness and his gracious attitude toward me. So according to his mercy, he has begotten us again to what? A living hope. How did he prove it? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now what did that lead to? An inheritance that's incorruptible, meaning no one can corrupt it, not even myself, and it's undefiled, and it does not fade away. Now where is it? It's reserved in heaven for you. This is a beautiful, beautiful clause here. It's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who is doing the keeping? God is doing the keeping. We access that relationship at a point in time through faith. We were saved from the penalty of our sin, but it's the power of God that makes all this possible, and that's what religion has screwed up. That's what so many churches across America don't understand. And I'm not saying we're the only church that knows any truth. That's not true at all. Plenty of churches that do. But there's plenty of other ones that day in and day out when people come to church, they're preaching to them about how they need to clean up their lives and so, so that they could work their way into God's good graces. They could make themselves somehow acceptable to God on the basis of something they could do for God instead of a focusing on what God has done for them. That's not the message of the Bible. That's a perversion of what the Bible is saying. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. There's nothing complicated about verses like that. But man is desperately seeking to have some part in this, and so naturally that kind of thinking permeates churches, and that's what people end up getting taught. Well, that's sad because while you're relying on yourself, you're not relying on Christ. While you're looking at your own efforts, you're not putting your dependence on Christ. While you're depending on your church and your rituals and yourself to save you, you're not putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And that is tantamount to rejecting Jesus Christ. And the only thing that can keep you out of heaven is rejecting Jesus Christ. That's why that is so sad when that is the message that is being proclaimed. You see, our heavenly destiny is not earned. It's part of the free gift of salvation. It's not something that one works to attain or maintain. You see some of the verses that I've probably already quoted here, but Romans 4, 5, but to him who does not work. Is that clear? Yeah, does not work, but instead believes on him who justifies or declares to be righteous. That's what it means to justify the ungodly, the one who's sinful. Who's that? Everyone. All has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All are guilty. All stand guilty between God. There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The one who declares righteous, the one who was ungodly, that is God himself. He gets access to that. You get access to that by not working, but by believing on him who makes this possible. Now, what is credited to you for righteousness? Your efforts at making yourself right? No, your faith. Your faith in what? Your faith in the effort of Jesus Christ to make you righteous as he applied his righteousness to your sinful account. How was it, how was it applied to the, your account? 
by faith in what Christ did for you. That's your only part in it. You see something similar in Ephesians 2.89. I've already quoted this. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift from God. A gift has to be freely given and freely received. Could it be any clearer? It's not of works. So quit trying to work yourself into God's good graces. It cannot be done. So now if salvation, meaning your position in God's family that you got access to through believing in the work of Christ and what he had done on your behalf and having his payment applied to your account, that moment you came to trust in him, you were born into God's family, that can never be lost. God says, I'll never let you go. One day you'll forever be with me. That's not what we're talking about here. So what can be lost? What can be lost? Well, what can be lost is rewards that God is going to give to believers who are faithful. It has nothing to do with whether you'll be in heaven. It's while you're in heaven or when you stand before the Lord, is he going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Whether or not he calls you his child has nothing to do with your faithfulness. It has to do with whether or not you accepted or put your trust in Jesus Christ and thus were born into his family. So you'll be in heaven as his child regardless of your faithfulness. That's the message of grace, God doing for you what you could never do for yourself. But the question is, will you be found faithful when you stand before the Lord such that you'll be given rewards for making use of your time in a way that honored Jesus Christ, lifted up Jesus Christ? Can you lose out on that recognition, on those rewards? And the answer is yes. We call that the doctrine of rewards. So there is a lot of loss that can be experienced by being influenced by false teaching. So the loss of the things we work for, this effort of we've been seeking to live our lives as influenced by God's Spirit in a way that would bring Him glory, God being the amazing God that He is, He's been honoring that by saying, I'm going to reward you for that in the future. Now, can you lose that? Yes. You can lose that, but you cannot lose your salvation. This, the phrase, the expression of full reward, it looks forward to this future judgment seat evaluation of every believer and the, intent, the intended or desired outcome. The desired outcome from the Christian shouldn't be a partial reward. Why wouldn't you want to hear well done? Why wouldn't you want to have a full reward? And we have a way of saying, well, just getting there will be good enough for me. What a waste. God is saying, I gave you that time. I gave you those resources, your, ta- your time, your treasure, your talents. I gave it to you so you could use it to exalt me, to lift me up. And in the process of doing what any reasonable person would do as they think about what I did for you, the only reasonable response would be to want to serve him. But as you exercise that reasonable response to my sacrifice or recognition of my sacrifice, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an additional reward on top of it. It's like grace upon grace is sort of the idea there. See, in that future day, as a further expression of God's grace, he's going to reward present faithfulness. And God warns against missing out on the rewards he wants to give. You see that in Revelation 3.11 here. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. That's not about holding fast to First tense salvation. You don't have to hold fast to something that God is the one securing. He's the one who's holding you in his hands. It's not about how tightly you can cling to him. 
He says the steps of a good man are directed by the Lord and he delights in his way. And though he falls, which happens at times to everyone, he will not be utterly cast down because the Lord is holding him in his hands. It's not about first tense salvation. It's about losing out on the reward that you have coming if you will let the Lord work in your life through the power of his spirit so you could live life in a way that would honor him. You see, there is a day coming when we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good and bad. Again, this has nothing to do with standing in God's family. This has to do with being evaluated for the time that you had, for the talents that you had, for the treasures you had, the resources you had. If you think about the substance of your life that God has gifted you with, the question is going to be asked, what did you do with the substance of your life that I so graciously gave you, son? What did you do with that? Now, not with the sense of you're getting kicked out of my family. What son ever got kicked out of a family because he didn't follow through with the expectations of the father? None. You were born into a family and that was permanent. Now, you've done lots of things to disappoint your, your father. You've done lots of things to fall short of some of the dreams and the hopes and the expectations that you, your parents had for you. You're probably doing it to this day if they're still alive. Your children have fallen short of some of the hopes and the dreams and the expectations that you had for them. But it has nothing to do with whether they're your child or not. It has to do with this evaluation of the time that you had, the resources that you had, and how did you spend them. You see, a believer's full reward is jeopardized by neglecting to stand guard against or heeding the deceptive teaching of the deceivers and antichrists. What's at risk here is this reward for living a life that would bring God glory. Now, follow the logic of this. If there's a deceptive message being taught to one who already is in God's family, and if the believer staying the course, running the race that's set before him, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of his faith, pressing onward toward the mark of the high calling. If that believer's, the objective is to bring God glory by having his focus on Jesus Christ, having his mind with a vertical mindset so that God through his spirit could work in him to produce a life that would lift up Jesus Christ, would exalt God. If that's the objective, is that objective going to be thwarted by the believer being influenced by deception and error and false teaching from these false teachers that have gone out into the world. Can we follow that logic? It's going to be impacted, right? Meaning my life isn't going to have the outcome that God would have liked it to have. So when I stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account, it's not going to be the same review or evaluation that it could have been. Why? Because if I'm not on guard against false teaching, I'm going to not be on the course. I'm not going to be running the race that God has for me. I'm going to be doing my own thing, and I'm going to be doing the things that Satan says are worthwhile, none of which have any eternal value. And so we'll conclude with this passage here. This is another one of the, the clearer passages about the doctrine of rewards. This is a confusing doctrine in the sense that it's not talked about that awfully much, and very often people, when they read passages about losing out on rewards, they apply it to losing your salvation. It has nothing to do with losing your spot in God's family. But there is going to be this evaluation. So here's what it, what it looks like. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of it all. We wouldn't be in heaven giving 
and account for the resources that God gave us if it weren't for Jesus Christ. Isn't it great how this passage starts with this? It's only by God's grace that I could even be born into God's family so I could stand before him one day and give an account. Now, what does that look like, though, the account? Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ, he's the center of all of this. He's the one who makes it possible. It's his spirit inside of me that makes living for Christ even possible. But if you build on that foundation, things that have value, gold, silver, precious stones. Now, you can also build on that things that have no value, wood, hay, straw. But you're building something all of the time. Now, each one's work will become clear. How's it going to become clear? For the day will declare it. What day? The judgment seat of Christ. The day when you're evaluated at the bema seat of Christ. Because it's going to be revealed by fire. Not literal fire, but the fire of God's evaluation. Meaning he knows what has value and what doesn't have value. So as he evaluates it, the things that had value are going to stand out. The things that don't, they're, they're going to perish in the sense of they're going to be burned up or have nothing to stand on. You'll have nothing to stand on there. It'll be declared or revealed by fire. Now the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now what were the two categories? Gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, or stubble. Now, if anyone's work, which he has built on, built on it, endures, he will receive what? A reward. Not he will receive entrance into heaven. Not he will receive a spot in God's family. He'll receive a reward in addition to being God's child. But what's the alternative? If anyone's work is burned, what kind of work is going to burn? Right here, wood, hay, and straw. Stuff that had no eternal value that you invested in. You invested in those things instead of gold, silver, and precious stones. The things of eternity. That's why the Bible says, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. This is what it's talking about. Things that have eternal value. And as you laid up for for yourself treasures in heaven, when that investment is reviewed at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to stand. It's going to receive a reward. But what's not going to stand? Investing in self, investing in the world, investing in the deception of those deceivers that have gone out into the world. But listen to this lest you be worried about this. This isn't written so that you worry about this evaluation. Now, he'll suffer loss. Loss of what? Loss of the reward that the one who is faithful would have had. But look, look at this. He himself will be saved. Why? Because his salvation had nothing to do with him. Had nothing to do with his faithfulness. It had to do with God's faithfulness. This is one of the clearest passages on eternal security in some ways because it shows that dichotomy between how God is going to evaluate what we've done with our lives as his children versus in contrast to how did I become his child to begin begin with. Beware of deceivers. Be on guard. Look out. Be careful. Friends, I hope you are reminded this morning that there's a spiritual battle raging. It's raging between truth, God's truth, and Satan's lies. It's a battle that's raging for your thinking. Satan desperately wants to confuse you. The only way that you could have your mind clarified or your your mind made clear is by seeking out God's truth. You can't do that if you don't come and hear the word of God taught and spend time in God's word and fellowship with other believers about God's word. That's how you come to know God's truth. So the battle's raging. I hope you're on guard. I hope you're recognizing that. I hope you're being aware of your surroundings like we teach our children. You see, the consequences of deception in time and in eternity are great. 
in time, it's missing out on that opportunity to live life in intimate fellowship with him and enjoy him. In eternity, it's standing before the Lord and losing out on that full reward that God says is available. Today, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, some refer to as communion. It's an opportunity that we have to remember Christ's sacrifice for us. So a couple of things that I want to say about it. It's intended for believers. It's not a way to become a part of God's family. There's nothing mystical about it. It's something that those who have already understood Christ's great sacrifice for them, they come and do together periodically as a way of celebrating the Lord's death, remembering the Lord's death until he comes. So we'll never forget. Think about all of the things that have happened that were tragedies in our country's history. And for a while, maybe 10 years, sometimes 50 years, it usually dies out eventually. People say what? Never, never forget. Never forget. The intention is good. The intention is good. It's a little bit foolish in one sense because, of course, people are going to forget. That's what happens to people by nature. And so if we're not careful, the caveat here is we'll tend to forget what Jesus has done for us too. We'll say, oh yeah, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven one day. Just going to live out the rest of my life, wait for the final seconds on the scoreboard to tick down, and then I'll go to be with him. I'm just going to sit on the sideline, watch the clock tick down. You know, I coach junior high girls basketball. Some of you don't know that. They couldn't find anyone else better. That's, that's the gist of it. <laughs> but in those games, there's players who are actively out on the court and they're striving, they're fighting, they're wrestling. In fact, my seventh grade girls were playing a tournament yesterday in Virginia. Well, actually, it was in Eveleth, but it was against Virginia. And I thought, you know what? They're not, they're not that great at basketball. But if like 50% of the final score could be determined by wrestling, we'd win this game. I got some wrestlers out there. But they're actively fighting for that ball. They're wrestling for that ball. They're striving for the victory. And there's some that if you ask them, do you want to go in the game, they'll say No. <laughs> I'm just here to ride the bus and eat nachos at the concession stand. (laughs) And you know what, friends? Uh, That's fine. In the context of basketball, that's fine. In the context of junior high basketball, that's fine. But in the context of the Christian life, is it fine to forget about our first love, to forget about what Christ has done for us, and just sit out watching the clock tick by while others are out there fighting that fight? God wants to get all of us out there using every ounce of energy that we have to serve him, to lift him up. Till what? Till the final second ticks off that clock. And is that going to happen soon enough, friends? Yeah, either because your, your clock is going to run out or he's going to come and get us all. The clock will run out because he'll come rapture us and take us to be with him. Don't we want to fight right up to the last second, though? Do we want to be the kind of team that gets down because we gave up a few baskets and we just start walking down the court, giving up, 
hanging our heads down? Or do we want to fight to the very end? And that's, to me, what this is about. If we don't constantly remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us and what we're all about, if we're Christ ones, Christians, if that's how we identify ourselves, then shouldn't we always be about remembering what he's done for us, what he sacrificed for us? And so that's what we're going to do here this morning. And it's symbolic. It's not mystical. It's symbolic. We do this in remembrance of him until he comes again. And so when we symbolize the blood that was shed for us, when we symbolize the body that was broken for us, that's all it is. It's a good reminder. So I'm going to ask you right now to take a moment as I have the elders come forward to prepare your thinking, your heart, so that you really can be celebrating this instead of having your mind distracted by other things. Just think about what we're actually celebrating here. And if you don't know the Lord, if you've never put your faith in Him, there's nothing to celebrate or remember. The first step is to put your trust and confidence in Him. Stop trusting in whatever else it was that you were trusting in, put all of your eggs in one basket. Faith in what Christ has done for you. Just say, I'll take that. I'm going to give up on everything else because nothing else had a sure foundation anyway. I can be absolutely sure, though, about you because you said this with absolute certainty that if I put my trust in you, you'll never let me go. So make that decision, and then you'll have something to celebrate as the cup passes by and the little wafers pass by. At this time, can I have the elders come forward? We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper.